Although a lot of people say to me, John, you're now 75, you must be retired. And I say, good Lord, no, I'm just getting useful. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 23 of My Way. This is the first half of a conversation I had with one of the first people I met when I moved to Grayton. Because I was still in shock after moving from the bustling harbor city of Boston, Massachusetts to a sleepy little mountain village in South Africa, I don't remember exactly how I met John Hanks, only that he and his wife invited me over for a little shindig at their house, and I've stayed in touch with them for the last six years, even after they moved out of Grayton a few years ago. Conservationist and mentor John Hank sat with me a couple of weeks ago at his home in Cape Town, where we had coffee and talked about his life. On a personal note, my grandmother, Susie Warner, died this week at the wise old age of 97. She was feisty, she corrected my grammar, she kicked my ass at Scrabble, and told me lots of dirty jokes. She once said to me, Sonny, I was wrong once in my life, and I made sure to never be wrong again. This episode is dedicated to her memory. On with the show. My name is John Hanks. I'm a zoologist by training. I did my first degree in Cambridge, graduated in 1965. And since then, I spend most of my professional life living and working in different parts of Africa. Um, I'm committed to conservation of biodiversity. And I've come to realize that we have a huge role to play in getting young people to adopt our passion and enthusiasm for conservation. If you look at so many of the people who are making statements about conservation now, they're mainly old whiteys. And we have to go beyond that and get articulate black people to come through and start speaking about these issues. So although I started off my career in wildlife management, working with conservation organizations in Zambia and Zimbabwe, and initially in KwaZulu-Natal, I then moved on to a lot of work on education and training and mentorship. And although a lot of people say to me, John, you're now 75, you must be retired. And I say, good Lord, no, I'm just getting useful. (laughs) I'm so much more to do. And I think the work I'm doing at the moment, particularly with three organisations, I'm chairman of something called the Lapalada Wilderness School, whose mission is to identify and mentor the leaders of the future. I'm very active on the board of another organisation called Green Matter, which is also involved with training at the tertiary level and giving people who are receiving bursaries through green matter not just a cash bursary but mentoring them and giving them the sort of supervision they perhaps don't always get from university. The third organisation is Outward Bound. Outward Bound taking young people into the field for anything up to a week at a time Um, sometimes two weeks, teaching them leadership skills, getting them to sleep out on the mountains. Very, very important role, particularly with previously disadvantaged children who, some of them, have a criminal background. It can change their lives. 
And I think with all three of those organisations, um, working with them for the recipients is a life-changing experience for them. It makes a hell of a difference. Um, on top of that, I'm now also involved with a lot of editing, uh, book reviews. I do a monthly book review for Fine Music Radio, which is good because it just adds to my library. I love books and you get more and more books that perhaps normally you wouldn't have a chance to, to buy or to read. So that's about where my life is today. I'm still very active and still lots more to do in the future. I was born in London and my father was in the Royal Air Force in England. So we moved every two and a half years, you moved to a new place. So we started off in, um, in London and that was why well, I was born during the war. And when the war finished, we lived in Germany for three years and then back to Norfolk and then out to Cyprus and then back to Yorkshire. It was always sort of moving. And uh, my father was um, a famous fighter pilot in the war. If you look on the pictures on the wall behind you, there's a picture of him during the war. And he was in number one squadron, which is a very famous squadron in England. And at the age of 18, he was in a diamond formation that flew over Hendon and they flew in diamond formation, came out line astern and so on. And it, it, it was amazing. He was just a natural pilot and uh, I was always keen on flying as a result. So I went to a school in Norfolk, a boarding school, um, an old fashioned school that you don't see very much of nowadays where it's old fashioned discipline. Um, we weren't allowed to call any of our mates at school by their first name, you had to address them by their surname. If you misbehaved without any hesitation, you would be caned by one of the masters. You just accepted it. And that was the way things were. And you grew up with respect for authority and you did things as you should do. I don't think it did me any harm and didn't do any of my colleagues any harm. Mm. But nowadays, um, it's very different. My grandson goes to an excellent school in Cape Town but they can wear what they like. They call the headmaster by his first name. But academically, it's excellent. And here's a child, my, my grandson, who really appreciates the freedom of the school. And he's just blossomed since he's been there. So I think the teachers treat them differently. There's none of the old fashioned discipline like I had at my school. Mm. And it works with him. So that's that was that. And then from school in Norfolk, I got a um, a scholarship to go to Cambridge to read zoology. I did the three-year degree in zoology, but before that, I had a gap year, and in my gap year, I went to Kenya. And I went to down to London to meet with a chap called Ian McPhail, who had just started the UK office of an organisation called World Wildlife Fund. And in those days, WWF had just one man and a secretary sitting in a tiny office in London amazing. And he said to me, if you can get yourself out to Kenya, I will be able to give you some introductions and um, in the wildlife sector. So I managed to, through my father, scrounge a lift out on a Royal Air Force plane to Nairobi and had six months in East Africa working on different projects. And that got me the Africa bug. What was your first memory that you can recall? I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> looking back, I suppose it would be 
memory of, but my mother was very good at, at getting me to read at an early age and used to read to me, but she said, let's look at the alphabet. And I remember the way she put the alphabet up around the wall of a room. And I still say the alphabet in the same way, A to G on one wall, and then H to N on the other wall, and then O to T, and the rest of the alphabet on the other wall, four walls of the alphabet. And it's, it's funny that it was done like that, but I, I think of the alphabet now in four segments, always. Wow. And, and that was done at a very early age. And I suppose because of that, I, I started reading at a very early age and um, used to devour books. I, I just look around our house now. I mean, there are books everywhere. It, it's amazing in Limpopo. There were schools, secondary schools without libraries. And if you could imagine kids trying to get up to speed to get into university and they have nothing to read at their home, most of their homes have no books, of course. And we take magazines up and the kids grab them and they actually can take home something to read. And they take home novels, quality novels, other books. Um, they've actually got something in their home that they can read. And it's sad now that people don't read that much. You look how the sales of books have dropped. Um, and, you know, if you have a print run of a book of 5,000 copies, that's regarded as pretty good. Um, most copies, you have 1,000 copies done. When I did my elephant book, we did 12,000 copies here and 12,000 in the States. And that was a sort of acceptable print run. But not anymore. It's much, much there. And number of houses you go into and you hardly see a book. And I'm talking about upmarket people and you ask them what did they read recently and one colleague of mine said he hadn't read a book since he left school and he's not read a book and um, they get their information from Twitter and from Facebook mm -hmm. and from online things. Going back to when you were a kid what were you like as a child? Gosh you do ask interesting questions. <laughs> 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 um, I, I was an only child and um, my parents were very insistent on proper behaviour, that you um, had the courtesy when you somebody gave you a present or you went to stay with somebody, you actually wrote a letter of thanks, which people don't do anymore. They taught me the importance of how to be a host and how to look after people when they come. And people said, Are you, were you lonely? Because they used to go out to, to Cyprus for holidays and... I didn't have many friends there, but I was quite happy being on my own. I used to read. Um, when we lived in Norfolk, I used to go down to the river and go fishing. Um, I'm quite happy on my own. I don't crave lots of other people. So that's the way I grew up, I suppose. If I suppose I had one person I looked up to was, was my father, because he was a very good pilot. But he said to me, by all means fly, but don't go into flying as a career because it's now totally different and what he meant by that was that when he learned to fly you take off in an airplane and you had to do everything without any fancy instrumentation at the time he said that to me he was commanding officer of royal air force station in coltishaw where they had these p1 fighters very sophisticated airplanes and they'd take off at a rate of knots climb up and then do something and they'd be down again before you knew it if you look at Bomber Command, they take off and they do these practice runs of dropping bombs across in, in, in Russia. But it was all 
take off heads down instruments everything is done in instruments and you look at commercial flying um, in old days when you had the old DC-3 you really did fly the thing but nowadays they take off and they go right up to 35,000 feet airplane mostly flies itself and you have a bit of action when you take off a bit of action when you land mesh the 10 hours you're sitting and virtually nothing to do he said that's not flying so he discouraged me for even thinking about a career in flying but I developed an interest in zoology I suppose in the outdoor life because I was on my own went into the field and I went fishing and collecting birds' eggs and things like that. Did you know that you wanted to go into zoology from an early age? No, I, you want, thinking... no I wanted to be a vet um, at an early age. And um, I was very keen to do that, but I didn't realise at the time I had to have A-level physics for some reason. And I didn't have physics. I did botany, zoology and chemistry. And when I came to doing university applications, both at Cambridge and at London School of, um, of Veterinary Medicine, I realised that without physics I couldn't get in, so I did zoology instead. I think most of the stuff I did there I'd probably forgotten. It wasn't a very helpful degree. Gosh, it's, it's, it's so difficult now to see the way children are growing up with a whole range of different things that stimulate them and occupy them. And um, I think it's up to parents to make sure that children don't spend their lifetime staring at screens. It is extraordinary when you go out to, to a restaurant and you see a family of four coming up and they come up and sit down at the table and the whole first 20 minutes, no one says a word. They're just looking down on their screens on their phones. Yeah. And I know that as a result of that, a lot of children don't get the exercise and outdoor activities they should, which is a great pity. I think it's so easy now to get hold of any information you want, um, which we certainly didn't have in my day. Um, when I did my PhD, we went into a library, you had to read, you had to take notes, um, didn't even have photocopy machines, so you couldn't photocopy things. You had to actually get the original text, sit down, read it, take notes and so on. And nowadays you can get absolutely anything off the internet. I mean, many of the old books and journals now have, have um, been digitised, they're all available. It's so easy. But the downside of that is the big problem we have of plagiarism, and that goes right the way through to university. And um, I've been involved, and I still am involved, with supervising postgraduates. And I say to the start, you must avoid plagiarism. Don't just copy and paste things because it's picked up and as I'm sure you know now there's programs that you can use you take a document you shove it in and you get plagiarism is picked up straight away and I did one document a student postgraduate gave me the other day 71% plagiarized and uh, no attempt to give anything it was just straight cut and paste boom. Um, and I said you're out you've been warned and I will not have anything more to do with someone who does this You've got to learn to do your own writing, your own summary, and so on. And um, I first picked this up when I was examining a PhD done by a student from Ethiopia. And I had great trouble with English. And I thought, gosh, this is really going to be hard work. Mm. And then I came to um, about three paragraphs that were absolutely superbly written. And I thought, gosh, that's interesting. Red flag. And, and then I looked at it, I said, I wrote that. Oh, no. <laughs> And he lifted something from a paper I wrote in 1972 and just put it straight in. He didn't know I was going to be the examiner. <laughs>
Talk about your first job, the first job you ever had. Um, for four years running, I worked in Selfridges in London. And um, that was an interesting story. I went down to London to look for a vacation job at Christmas time. And I was going down Bond Street and the first shop I went to, it said assistance required for Christmas. And I went straight in and I said, look, I see you've got notice in the vac um, vacancy for Christmas. Um, can I apply? And they gave me a strange look. It was a ladies' underwear shop. So that was out of there very quickly. <laughs> and then from there, um, I ended up working in Selfridges, but um, in the fabrics department. And you were selling fabric. I remember very clearly by the yard, 4 and 11, 5 and 11 and 6 and 11 a yard different fabrics and you measure it out and what have you and it was it was fairly quiet just before Christmas but after Christmas in England they had what they call the New Year sales and the shops go mad and it was very very busy and we were paid commission I think I was paid something like 10 pounds a week and for every um, 100 pounds of extra stuff you sold you got extra 10 shillings or something and um, we were always told to sell as much as we can and a lady would come in and give me her dress pattern and said, how much do I need for this dress? You look at it and say, well, I recommend you take five yards, madam, to make sure. And that was really wrong because you could make a dress of candy with a yard. So we always sold sort of more than that. Not one person came back ever to complain. Really? Not one. You were upselling. Um, well, that, I, I thought we guilty about it, but uh, that was the way it went. It, but my first real job was... Um, just as I was graduating from, from Cambridge, I read an advertisement for a biologist to go to the Kafui National Park in Zambia. And I thought, well, I haven't got a chance in Hades of getting this because I've just got a degree. In. And um, I thought, let's apply. And I went for an interview down in London with the British Overseas Development Administration. And a wonderful old gentleman there was interviewing me and had a white moustache and all colonial type. And he said, tell me about your background. And I told him that I'd been to Kenya, the gap year, which obviously made the difference. Mm. And then he said, tell me, my boy, can you shoot? And I said, well, yes, um, I can. And he said, jolly good. Well, I think you're just the man we're looking for. And to my absolute amazement, I got this job <laughs> as, as the biologist in the Kafui National Park at the age of 22 and a half years of age. And I went to Zambia as the sole biologist in an area that's the same size as the Kruger National Park. And that was quite a being thrown in the deep end. So what do you think are your best qualities? Uh, gosh, um, I'll tell you the worst ones first. Okay, I was going to ask you that second. <laughs> no, I'm... A lot of people think that I'm very tolerant, and I suppose I have to be because of the nature of the work I do. I'm not that tolerant of people who let you down and who don't set acceptable standards. Um, I think it's happening increasingly with companies around the world. You try and do business with people. They don't return calls. They don't do things that they should. Um, you get let down, and that makes me very angry. I have always given of my time to advise and help other people. And if I see something that is wrong, 
I do not hesitate to say so and say so to the person who is doing the wrong, not behind their backs, which is important. And it's got me in hot water and several times. I know in Kafui National Park, we had a situation there where the warden of the park was bringing his brother into the park to shoot animals to take out of the park from a back of a vehicle. And this was done in front of the Game Scouts. And I said, you can't do this. It's, it's, uh, I know there's a surplus of animals and we're allowed to shoot as rations, but you cannot bring your brother in to shoot inside the National Park and allow him to take the meat out. And I reported him to the head of the department in Lusalka. And I was told to shut up. You don't talk about these things. You know, that's, that's what happens. And I've had several other incidents like that where I see something I disagree with. I never go behind someone's back. I either tell them directly that I'm sorry, I disagree with this, or I make sure that the practice stops. And it's, it has several times got me in hot water. So, yeah, so I guess sometimes being honest can be a, a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it can be. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, there's some stories that I could tell, but I don't think I will, because that should be the subject of my next book. And your best qualities, other than the double-edged sword of being honest? I suppose wanting to mentor and help other people. It's um, I've always appreciated that I look back and um, my supervisor in Cambridge was the person who used to always advise and help. And I realised you can make a huge difference to people's lives if you give them the right advice and guidance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's time consuming. And I often, I remember my, my PA at... Uh, Peace Parks Foundation said, John, why are you always dealing with these students that come to see you? You've got far better things to do. And I said, just spending half an hour or an hour with one of these young people can change their lives. And the number of times people have come back to me and they said, gosh, John, you don't realize this, but you saw me in your house, in the office for an hour and you gave me advice that set me up for life. And that's very rewarding. And it's it's easy to do. but right. It, it does take time, mm-hmm. and I suppose that's why I'm, at the moment, very busy on lots of different activities. Mm-hmm. I think in the world of academia is that people are reluctant to share. And um, I see a lot of that, that people say, well, this is my data, I'm not going to give it to you unless right. you give me credit. And I've always had a rule, and you look behind you, there's rows of PhD theses and things that I've supervised or examined over the years, I've always had a rule that I will never put my name on any of the students' papers unless I did a great chunk of original work with them. Just because I've supervised them doesn't give me the right to have my name on anything they write. Mm. Um, I've always been very strict about that. And I've encouraged people to, when they do a thesis, to publish as much as they can under their own name. It's going to help them. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to make much difference to my career. Yeah. And this is part of the trouble now with modern academia is that you're judged by the number of publications. And if you want to get promotion, if you've got to have quantity and people think, oh, Johnny Bird, he's published 20 papers this year and, um, and what have you. But you look at some of those papers as repetition and there's names that you put on the paper that's work that's done by a student. And that's not right.
So tell me a little bit about your family now. Well, I was very lucky when I was at Cambridge. I met um, Carol, who was a nurse from Cambridge, and we got engaged in my last year there, and we got married just after I graduated. I went out to Zambia ahead of her. She was finishing her nursing training in England, finished her training, and um, came out about three months later to Kafu National Park where we were living. And uh, it, was, um, it was a remote station, no telephone connections there. We had a radio link with the head office um, once a day. And um, it was about five hours from an area shop and a long way from any hospitals and so on. You learnt very quickly to to live in a place where you just don't go down the road and buy a bottle of milk. You Sometimes we couldn't get out for about a couple of months at a time, but we were allowed to fish in the river. We were allowed to shoot a guinea fowl of Franklin a week or a, an impala once a month. Um, I did the impala just once and that was it. And then we took the old guinea fowl, but wonderful fish in the Kafui River, beautiful tilapia which we used to go down and catch. She, when she came out, was um, because she was a nurse, was put in charge of running a bush clinic. And that was a fantastic experience, because here you are, not having been trained in tropical diseases, but you're suddenly in a remote area, having to run a clinic with limited facilities. And that's where we started off our life. Wow. And um, we had a house in a remote area, looking out across the Incala floodplain, and we used to have buffalo in the garden with a lion walking at the bottom. We Once uh, the, one of the rangers went away and he, he said, please look after my Labrador, and he went away, and the Labrador went down the bottom of our garden, put his nose in the water, and taken by a crocodile, right at the bottom of our garden. Um, so that was part of growing up in that area. And our, our first child, Jonathan, was born in Osaka Hospital and um, came out and started his life living in Kafui National Park. And our daughter Caroline was born when we went back to Cambridge to do my PhD on elephants. So we have a son, Jonathan, who is uh, far cleverer than I am. He runs his own business called Insight, and he's into all sorts of issues of sustainability and advising companies on sustainable development, um, doing incredibly well. And our daughter, Caroline, is um, she does environmental writing. She's a, a fanatical trail runner. Um, and I think if she gets up in the morning and doesn't do 20 k's before breakfast, she feels almost deprived. And she's won them the cake puffer. She's won it, I think, twice. And that's a demanding race. I mean, sort of eight hour things. She's got all sorts of prizes for those. And she's off in a few weeks time to do a seven-day run in Rwanda up with the mountain Grunazar. Um, so that keeps her fully occupied. How did Grayton come into your life? Um, Grayton came into our life because we had got to the stage where we were going to move from the house that I had that went with my job at WWF. And we at the time had um, driven through to McGregor to stay the night and then done the walk across the mountain from McGregor down to Grayton. And we came down to Grayton, arrived about um, just after midday, and we fell in love with the place. And what we liked about it was the fact that it has water. 
and um, being a keen vegetable gardener, um, I wanted to be in a place where we could have guaranteed water, which Grayson had at the time with the Laywater, um, where property was affordable, which again it was at the time when we bought, although prices have gone through the roof recently. Um, and that was that was it. We moved there, and we it's the longest we've ever been in any one place. We were there for 12 years. Thanks for joining John and me on a sunny afternoon in Cape Town. Join me next time for the second half of the conversation where we talk about his book, Operation Lock, and the war on rhino poaching, as well as the biggest challenge facing conservation today. Do you know what it is? Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. If you'd like to get in touch, you can also email me at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. See you next time.